Well, hey, church, glad to see you here this morning. Before we get rolling today, I want to give you guys a quick update on our Everyone on Three campaign, uh, we, which, I, which we just talked about a couple weeks ago. But uh, we at Grace, like I had told you guys before, we went out and we hired an architect to come in, and they were from Oklahoma, they come here, they checked out our building, they, uh, we put together with them kind of our master facility plan for our church here, and uh, with the property that we have. And so we got that taken care of. They, put, they took care of what the outside would look like and kind of blending everything together. So we got that done. And then a couple of weeks ago, we were able to, we signed a contract with Klaus Construction to start the design phase of the first phase of our building, the first building that we're going to build, which will be right outside this wall over here. And, um, and with that, they're doing all the electrical, you know, the mechanical design, the structural, everything that goes along with that in order for us to get ready to build. And so that should take around three to four months. And then after that, we'll be scheduling a time to break ground. And so just want to let you guys know, all right, it's coming. We're working on it. The first uh, building that we're going to build, I think we got uh, the images that you guys have seen before. Um, we're going to focus on this portion right here. Uh, this portion we will have, it'll give us a couple more classrooms for our children's area and uh, that we so desperately need because we're busting out of the seams in there. And then it'll also give us a brand new nursery that, uh, that we'll have um, for our, that'll be, that's part of our master plan. Um, and uh, not many churches, I would assume, can say that they need to build bigger and bigger nurseries. But you guys are wild and crazy, and <laughs> we got kids, so <laughs> got to take care of it. Um, but, uh, but we got, you know, so we got that coming. And then on top of that, will be a large indoor space with a large indoor playground that uh, will be right out front. And so with that, uh, we are simply viewing that as not for us, all right, that will be used as a tool to reach the people who aren't here yet, okay? So that will be as a tool to reach our community, the families, the next generation of our church, um, grandparents, everybody uh, to, um, to come and we'll have that open throughout different times throughout the week. It'll be free. We want our community to come use that as a part of our church. And so we want to be a church that looks like we are, you know, it looks like from the outside that we look healthy and growing alive, right? That's what we want, okay? Um, that's kind of the reason why we put the playground right in front, right? We got the playground right here. Let's go back, yeah, right there. That'll be in front of our, our someday, our future campus. Um, when everything's built, the whole master plan, we got it right out in front. We got it sticking out. We got windows all over the place because we want to look like a church that the community knows that we are all about investing in the next generation and we care about our kids. But we don't just want to be a church that looks healthy, right? That looks like we're growing, that looks alive. We want to be a church that actually is healthy, that is growing, and that is alive on the inside together as a family. And today what we're going to do is we are going to look at a church at a, in a city called Sardis. And this church, they looked alive, man. They looked healthy. They had everything going on. They were doing a bunch of good stuff. They were doing so much good within their community. But Jesus looks at them and he says, man, you guys are actually dead. And so we're going to use this as a warning for our church. So uh, be prepared to be offended today. Can I just say that up front? Okay, I don't care who you are, what you're doing, if you've been a Christian for 40 years, whatever. All right, the Bible is offensive, and I'm just telling you up front, okay, probably all of us in this room, we're all going to leave offended. But that's, that's good because a lot, that's how God works, right? He chips away. We are so different from him that, uh, that his truth is offensive to us and our culture. So this is where we're at, right? John, he's in his 90s. 
Uh, this is the same John who was buddies with Jesus. He was one of the 12 original disciples. Uh, John had been banished by Rome to an island called Patmos. He was living in a prison cell there. He turns around one Sunday morning. We've talked about the story. And uh, suddenly he's just, bam, like in the throne room of God. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And he looks, turns around because someone behind him is talking to him. And he turns around and he sees a white-haired, fiery-eyed, glowing-skinned, sun-shining-faced Jesus talking with him, standing there, and Jesus tells him to write down a message. I mean, he literally says, I was looking for my TV, it's gone, all right? He literally says, he says, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. So here he is, right up front, he's saying, hey, this is from me. This is from Jesus to this church in the city of Sardis. Now, Sardis was a city, they were about 30 miles uh, southeast of Thyatira. We got this here on the map. It's in modern-day Turkey. That's where you can see Sardis right up there, kind of in between Philadelphia and Thyatira. And uh, Sardis was a smaller city. In fact, it was one of the most, at one point in its history, it was one of the most glorious cities in the entire region, maybe one of the most glorious cities in the entire world. But at the time of this letter, when this is written by John, this is around 90 A.D. when Revelation is written, all of that glory, all that prestige, that was all in the past. It's one of the most ancient cities on earth. Today, the city is still there. It's a small little town now um, in, called the city of Sart. And uh, there's only around 5,000 people living there. But back in the day, this city, it was founded around 1200 B.C. It became the capital of the Lydian Empire, which was a big empire at one point in history in this region. Uh, the city was known for their gold. It was a city that actually became super rich um, because of the gold and all the streams around it. You can see, um, picture this whole countryside really surrounded by city, and the city was kind of built up on this mountain. You got ancient ruins that are still there. Uh, this was a temple to Artemis that was there at the time of the writing of this letter. Um, this was the first city. They were so rich that there's the first city to um, make and mint gold coins to use as money in the entire world. I mean, this city had everything that you could possibly have dreamed on. Uh, it was built upon this, this mountain. Actually, there's this huge mountain that the city is built on. And they had the lower city, which surrounded the mountain. And the lower city was surrounded by walls that were 66 feet thick. Okay, that's thicker, wall thicker than the width of our room here. And, uh, and then on the upper city, which was located up up on top of this mountain where you had 1,500-foot cliffs on each side, and it was really a fortress. You can still see the ruins there today. As you can imagine, that would be a hard fortress on top of this mountain that went all the way up. The rest of it has slid down the mountain. Um, that would be a hard fortress to conquer, for any opposing army to conquer. In fact, in the, in the, in the ancient world, this fortress here, as you can imagine, up on top of this entire mountain, not just that little spot, this fortress was considered invincible. It was feared by everybody in the world. I mean, it had, again, the 1,500-foot drop on three different sides. It was known as the strongest fortress on the planet. In fact, this city became so rich off the gold that was in the area and off their fortress, off their military strength, that it became so powerful that, it, that the, in 547 B.C., so this is roughly 650 years before the re Revelation is written, 
the king of Sardis attacked the world empire of that time, which happened to be Persia, and he attacked King Cyrus, who was the emperor of Persia. If you've read the Bible for any amount, you may have remember King Cyrus. He's in the Old Testament. Daniel kind of dealt with King Cyrus a little bit. He's the one that ordered uh, the temple, and the Jewish people could go back to their homeland, and they could rebuild the temple way back 650 years before in the Old Testament. And so Sardis, this king... Um, of Sardis, they attacked the Persian Empire, and uh, Sardis lost the battle, which is kind of interesting. This has nothing to do with the message, but I find it weird. Um, the Persians had all these camels, okay, and the Sardis, they were known, the city was known for having, like, the most elite cavalry in the entire world. Like, they were known for that, the guys on their horses going at it. And so when the, when the cavalry came up against the Persians and their camels, the horses had never seen a camel before, and it freaked them out. And so they lost the battle because of that, because of the camels, which I found was interesting. But there was also the most powerful army in the world, and so that probably helped with that as well. And so Sardis lost the battle. The city lost that battle. And so the, the army of Sardis, they went back to the city that they had never been conquered. And so the king actually disbanded his army because he was not worried behind his 66-foot walls of the lower city and then the fortress on top of that mountain. He was not worried at all about the huge Persian army that followed behind him that was, that was the largest and most powerful army in the world at that point. And so the Persian army, they laid siege to Sardis, and they, the people of Sardis, they felt protected. They didn't even, actually, the king of Sardis, he disbanded, yeah, did I ever say that? Okay, I don't know. I can't remember what service we're in. Anyway, he disbanded his entire army. So he tells the army, hey, you guys can go home. We're good. We're going to go hide out in the, in the fortress real quick. They can't get to us. We're all right. They didn't even, like, monitor their walls. All right? They didn't even, like, guard their walls. And so the, the story goes that the city, as the Persian army has been surrounding them for two weeks, that a guy was on top of the wall and one of the Sardis guys, uh, he actually dropped his helmet over the wall and it dropped down the 1,500-foot cliff. And so um, he, one of the guys, I don't know if it was him, but one of the guys, he jumps over the wall, and these guys are like known, like, you know, this is their home. So they had done this, you know, as kids, they grew up on this mountain. And so they climb down, he climbs down this mountain, he scales the cliff, he goes, grabs the helmet, and he, he scales it back up, and then jumps back into the city, all's good. But he does it in front of the entire Persian army, which is all, and, and it's all a bunch of young dudes going, oh, I could do that, you know? And so that... And so a few guys, they, they get together, and they go, and they copy the guy in the pass that he took, and they copy the way that the guy scaled the 1,500-foot cliff. They jump over the wall. Nobody's worried. Like, they're not guarding their wall at all or the city because they're in this fortress and not worried about it at all. And uh, they go. They open up the gates in the middle of the night. The Persian army comes in, and Sardis falls for the first time in their over 1,000-year existence. They fall. And, um, and it actually, news of this spread all throughout the world. And the saying, capturing Sardis, became a saying for doing the impossible. So you got that, like, that trick shot that you do. You know, your buddy would be like, oh, man, you just made that shot. Oh, you just captured Sardis. You know, you did the impossible. Like, that's, that's the saying that the, old, that the ancient world would say. I mean, it was, a, it was a huge thing. And it's interesting, the Persians, they went in and they took over Sardis. They were like, dude, this is a sweet fortress. We're going to make it our fortress. And so they were there for a long time until the Greeks came on the scene. And the Greeks conquered the city a few hundred years later with 15 men, almost the identical way. You'd think they would learn their lesson. Same thing. They scale up this, this cliff and, uh, and they, they 
open the city and they conquer the city. And then in 17 AD, this is about when John was a teenager, there's this earthquake that happens within the region that completely destroys Sardis. And then Rome comes in, because Rome owns the world in this, at this point in history, and they come in and they rebuild Sardis, but it's nothing compared to their former glory. And everybody knows it. And so here's the city that had a rich history. But they are overshadowed by all the cities around them, by cities that we've looked at, like Pergamum and Ephesus and Smyrna. And they're overshadowed, and it was a city on the decline. And so Jesus says, write to that church in that city. And he says, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what is he talking about? Some of you guys are like, seven spirits, what? Huh? Seven stars? Like, this is why I don't read the book of Revelation, because I don't understand anything. Because this is confusing and it's weird. You're like, seven spirits, what does that mean? And it's actually quite simple. Um, here's here's what, what this is. All right, there's only one Holy Spirit. Okay, let's just get that straight. There's only one Spirit, God. There's only one God out there. Um, but the word seven throughout the entire Bible is the number of, like, completion. Kind of like how we would use the word 100%, all right? Back then, they'd be like, what do you mean 100 for? What's that got to do? And we're like, no, 100 means, like, all of it. And they're like, yeah, that, no, that's what seven means, okay? Seven and 100, that's it's very similar. And so this is seven. It means perfection, or it means all of it. And he's saying, let's go back to the verse real quick. He's saying, thus says the one who has the seven spirits, or the whole spirit of God living within him. In fact, what's interesting is that Isaiah describes Jesus, all right, way back in the Old Testament, about a thousand years before Jesus was actually born, Isaiah describes something very similar here. He describes Jesus as, as one who's going to have the seven spirits or seven characteristics of the spirit, all right, on him, which is interesting. And this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, all right, that's one. A spirit of wisdom, two. An understanding, three. A spirit of counsel, four. And a spirit of strength, five. A spirit of knowledge, six. And the fear of the Lord, seven. And so what's interesting is maybe this day, whenever it was, around 90 AD or so, as this church gathers together on a Sunday morning, similar to what we're doing here today, and they get this letter, and the, the pastor, the messenger, he comes out, he's like, hey, guys, guess what? We got a letter from John. And they're like, oh, John, how is he doing? He's still in that prison camp, lugging marble around on Patmos. And they're like, yeah, we got a letter from him. And it's actually as a message to us from God. Pretty intense, right? Like, if you got a specific message from God, right, probably something you would want to read. And so they get out, and they start reading this. And probably when they get to this point, there's probably a handful of people within the congregation within the church, it's like, oh, seven spirits of God. Just like how Isaiah said Jesus would have. Like Isaiah, a thousand years before, Jesus is saying, yeah, he's Jesus going to have the full, complete spirit. This is kind of what it looks like. These characteristics will be a major part of him. And then here's Jesus, about 60 years after his resurrection, telling John, he's like, oh, yeah, remember me? Same guy. I have the seven spirits. I, I, I'm, I'm perfected. And God's spirit is within me. The whole spirit is within me. Right? He's talking, uh, to, he's talking to these people. And these people, I'm sure, connect. A lot of them connect exactly what he's talking about. And uh, Jesus starts reminding them who he is. He's saying, amen, this is from me. This is not from John. Right? John's just the messenger. He's just the guy writing this down. And he's saying, I just want to remind you of who I am. Like I am, you know, God's perfect 
Holy, complete spirit lives within me because I am God, is what Jesus is saying here. I'm perfectly wise. And in taking the characteristics of Isaiah, he's like, I'm perfectly wise. He's the God who understands all. He's a counselor who wants to help us. But with strength, he knows everything. But he's also dangerous and should be feared and should be respected. He is who God is. He's the God who holds the seven stars in his hands, and he kind of rolls them around like marbles. He's the God who holds the church of Sardis in his hands because the church belongs to him just like we belong to him. That Jesus says, I know your works, meaning I know what you do. I've seen all the things that you do. I know the things that you do in the dark. I know all the things that you do behind closed doors. He's like, I know what you think. I know what you've said. I've known what you thought. He says, I know your works. I know all the things that you do. He says, but you have the reputation on the outside for being alive. You look so rich and you look so alive. But you, church, are dead. When he says dead, this particular church, it's not like probably how we view a dead church. You know, probably a lot of us in this room, including myself, we've all at some point in our life been a part of a dead church. You know, um, not all of us maybe, but a lot of us in here. Uh, part of the reason, some of us, that's why we're here, okay, because we were a part of a dead church. And so um, th- that's, a, that's a real thing. But when we think of a dead church, like what do we think about? We think of like a small church with like that used to, used to be so alive, but now they have you know, I don't know, 30 old people and nobody's reaching out. And, you know, it becomes like a social club for us. It's like, oh, yeah, go see my buddies, you know, on Sunday. Um, and, uh, and there's examples, unfortunately for us, like there's examples of this all over the place, like all around us. And again, a lot of us have been a part of that. And see, we look at those churches and we're like, okay, those churches look dead. We walk in. Some of us, we, you just know. You're like, okay, there is nothing going on here. All right? Those churches look dead because most of those churches are dead. But this church right here, while dead on the inside, they don't look it. In fact, on the outside, this church looks like they're thriving. Like, everything looks good. I mean, there's a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of stuff. This is the kind of church the parking lot's full and the auditorium is packed. And they have multiple services. They got great music, really good coffee. And uh, the people serving on the tech team and the children's team and music team. And they got building campaigns. They're all about big, building bigger and bigger buildings. And they have a great reputation in their community. Right? Does that sound familiar, by the way? Okay. Scary. I mean, that's the kind of church that this church is. It's a busy church in a busy city. It's the church that you open up the bulletin. You see all these different ministries, all these different things that you could do, all these different, you know, groups that you can belong to. There's just so much to do. But Jesus is watching, and he knows what's really going on, and he's looking at them, and he's saying, hey, you do a bunch of good stuff. You have a bunch of things to do, but man, you're dead. And he's not against the work. Right? Jesus ain't against the work. He's all about the work. That's, that's Jesus. I mean, that's what he told us to do when he left. He's like, hey, I got a job for you. You need to work. And this is what you got to do. Go tell people about what I've done. See, the problem is it's not their work that they're doing. Or it's, it's their work that they're doing. It's not God's work that they're doing. 
See, they probably started off well. This is a church that was probably started by Paul. Right? Paul was maybe one of the most famous Christians of all time. Uh, Paul, he toured the area or around the area. He went from city to city to city to city. Uh, we see this back in the book of Acts. It tells us about how he went to, through all this, this entire region. He probably started this church. And, and this church, probably that was roughly around 30 years before. And, and, but at some point, this church, like they got so caught up in the religious stuff they got so caught up in the religion or in religion and tradition that they have a lot of social work going on, but there's not a lot of gospel work going on. And that's an issue for God. And we, as a church, should be viewing this 2,000 years later here in Tiffin, Ohio, that we can have a great reputation and we can put on a show and we can look like we're growing with God and we can put on a front and we can look great from the outside and everybody passing by and everybody, you know, on the outside can hear about, oh, wow, they're doing so good over there. But on the inside, we could be totally dead. And that should bother us. Last year, it was in, I think it was in November. It was one of those days, you know how it is like in the fall or late fall, where you have like a good day where it's like 66 degrees, it's sunny, you know, you got the white clouds, blue sky, that type of thing. And you're thinking, this is the last nice day I'm going to have till April. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know? Yeah, you know. And you know. And so um, it was one of those days. It was that day, whenever that day was, last November. Um, I was with my boys. We were at my parents' house, and they got a few acres, and they have uh, some, like, some woods and, and a creek in the back. And so we went out there. We are like walking around because you got to be outside on that day, on your last nice day. And uh, as I'm going down this, like, ravine, and I brace myself against a tree. And this tree was, like, pretty big. It was, like, this big. It was super tall. You know, it looked completely normal, um, just like any other tree. And when I braced myself against it, I could hear, like, the crackling through the trunk. You know what I'm talking about? We're like, oh, this thing's not as sturdy <laughs> as I thought it might be. See, that's one of my biggest worries. It was a tree that was, looked great on the outside, but on the inside, it was just completely rotted out. And one of my biggest worries as your pastor is that our church may look alive from the outside, but my worry is that many of us on the inside are just completely dead. And I think that's worse than looking dead on the outside. Because if we look dead, at least we know we're dead, right? That's a good thing. At least we know there's a problem. But if we look alive and we're actually dead, I think a lot of us, we fool ourselves into thinking we're all good, and we're not. And that should bother you like it bothers me. It sure does bother Jesus. He hates it. He hates it. And so he gives them kind of a step-by-step process to fix it. This is what he says. He says, this is what you need to do. Number one. Be alert. Now, this word, be alert, um, this is not my favorite translation of this word. The word literally means wake up, which I think makes so much, it rings in our ears a little bit better here today, thinking of that. This is what Jesus says right up front. I mean, straight up. He says, hey, this is what you got to do. Okay, so if you're dead and you look alive even, but you're just dead on the inside, he's like, the first thing you got to do is wake up, right? That's the first step. We need to wake up. See, I think a lot of us, all right, many of us in this room, and sometimes even myself, like I'm not, ex- I'm not immune from this. I am ju- I'm, a, I'm, I'm with you, okay? We, we all struggle with this sometimes, but I think sometimes Jesus would describe us as sound asleep spiritually. And that's not good. I mean, if you're a parent, have you ever had this? Have you ever had that kid that doesn't wake up? You know what I'm talking about, right? 
You guys, maybe your kids are all good. You say, hey, wake up. And they're like, okay, I'm ready to go to school today. You know, is that you? Or do you ever have the kid that doesn't wake up, you know? You guys are killing me with this. I apparently have one messed up kid, um, unlike you guys. Uh, he, uh, my middle child, Wes, man, this kid, man, this kid, like, could, he just sleeps. And when he sleeps, he's, like, sound asleep. And so, uh, like, this past Tuesday, we went to Cedar Point. We got Cedar Point passes this year. We hardly ever use them. So, you know, Cedar Point's making bank off of us. So we went. Just right after work, I was like, let's go to Cedar Point for two hours, and we'll come home. At least we could say, look, we used our pass once. And so um, we go there. And when we're coming home, I mean, it's late. It's dark out. And so uh, Wes falls asleep in the car. And when we get home, you know, I'm, like, trying to wake him up, and, his, and he's sitting in his seat, and he's just like, you know, there's just not, no, no action going on there. And sometimes it's kind of open eye a little bit, and you're like, we're home. Can you move? Can you walk to the house? And he's just like, oh, yeah. And then you'll set him down, and then it just, like, crumples and falls asleep. And so what I have to do is I have to carry him. I usually carry him in the most uncomfortable way for him as possible, just, like, try to get him up. And so I'll, like, throw him over my shoulder. I'm walking out, I'll walk into the house, and I'll set him on the ground, like, straight up. He'll just stand there, and I'll say, okay, Wes, I need you to go up, and I need you to brush your teeth, you know, change your clothes, like, that type of thing. And he'll be like, okay, and he'll start walking there. I'll leave the room. I'll come back two minutes later. The kid's just asleep in a ball on my floor. And so I have to pick him up. I carry him to the steps. And I'm like, okay, the stairs. Hey, Wes, I need you to walk up these stairs. I want you to go and I want you to brush your teeth, you know, do all the things you got to do. And he's like, okay. And he'll start walking up the stairs. I'll leave. I'll come back a few minutes later. He's asleep on a stair, you know, on a step. And he's like, dude, this kid. And you pick up his arm, it just drops. Poosh. This is like kid's like dead weight, man. He's in his own little world. And so I just eventually just have to say, forget your teeth, forget your clothes. Just throw them in and we'll figure it out tomorrow. That type of thing. But here's the deal. I think a lot of us, every single one of us, I guess, we have this natural inclination to stay in our own world. We have this natural inclination to stay asleep. We like to sleep. And, and what, we, what are we sleeping on? All right, I'm not talking about physical sleep. I'm saying we sleep on reality. And so what do we do? Well, we stop going to church every week. Right, we go to church once in a while, but, but it's not an every week thing. And, and we reason with ourselves. We're not like, you know, we're not flat out rebels. We're just like, well, here's the deal, man. I got, you know, my kids got sports during this season, so we can't do church. And, and well, I got this tournament, and so we got that this weekend. We got this, and, and I got work. Some of you guys is, is, well, you know, they schedule me for work. So, you know, what else can I do? I mean, I'm, I'm stuck in this. Or, or, hey, we got to go up to the lake. Hey, it's summer. I don't want to, you know, I can't waste our summer. We got this and we got that. By the way, can I just tell you as parents, like, think about it, parents. What are you teaching your kids when you're doing that? You're teaching your kids, yeah, we go to church when we have nothing else to do, right? That's not going to end up well for your kid. What do you think your kid's going to do when they move out of the house and they're 21 years old? Think they're going to church? Maybe, when they got nothing else to do. I mean, I mean, we've got to think about this kind of stuff. We fall asleep. It's so easy to fall asleep. Some of us, we fall asleep because we get so used to, like, watching online. Right? Like, that's the thing. And we're like, you know, I'm online. This is my thing. You know, it's church, right? Like, I'm, like I'm doing church. But in reality, all right, what, what is it? Right, this, it's not church. Sure, you're getting fed. You're getting some Bible. By the way, you should be doing that all on your own every single day. All right? I get that. But church is where we come together. And we're supposed to be with each other. We're supposed to do life together. That's what church is. That's what the church is supposed to do. We work together as a team to reach as many people as we possibly can together. Doing life together together. 
not sitting at home on our Lazy Boy eating our cereal with our cats, you know, watching online. That's, that's, that doesn't count. That's not, it's, a, it's not church. We fall asleep. We get stuck in these little ruts. And so we don't give back to God a portion of what he's given to us. Right? We, don't, we don't sacrifice anything. We're not invested with our church. We, our Christian life is, there's no sacrifice going on in a lot of our areas, specifically financial, that we're, you know, that, that there's, just, there's just nothing going on there. And so, and so we're asleep. Right? We fall asleep. We're, we stop inviting. Some of you guys, you, at some different points in your life, you've been so good at inviting people to church. You got that person or those people who are like, man, yeah, every day I'm like, hey, you need to come to my church. You need to come to my church. You invite, you invite, you invite, you invite. But then at some point, or maybe even lately, you're looking back and you're like, man, I've just gotten lazy. It's been a while since I invited them to church. Or it's been a while since I talked about my faith with them. We've fallen asleep. And so we stopped serving. Some of us, we've been, you know, we, we used to serve all the time. Like serving was like every week we do this thing. And we've, just, we've just gotten lazy in that. We, we, we've fallen asleep. By the way, if that's you and you're like, I don't know how to get back in it, fill out a card, right? Put that on your card. We'll get you plugged in somewhere where you enjoy serving, where you fit. We fall asleep so easily. And so we sit at home on the couch flipping through Netflix because we're bored and we, what are we going to watch next? And we choose, we choose not to think about the tens of thousands of people around us here in Seneca County who are our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our coworkers, our employees, just all these people. And we choose not to think about the fact that, that they are on the path to hell. Like it's reality. Because if we thought about that, that would bother us. And so what we do is we're kind of like Wes. We stay in our little own little world. And we like to think about the only things that we want to think about, the positive stuff, and because we're, we're asleep. And so we choose not to be involved in our country politically. And I'll, I'll be the first to tell you right now, I hate politics. I hate politics. I hate the whole political, you know, people who get political. Like, I don't hate the politicians, although some politicians I really am tempted to hate. You know, I'm just like, why? But, but you know, I'm just saying, I, I hate politics, and I hate that you know, this, it's just a thing. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. All right? We can have our different political opinions on things. That's totally fine. That's totally all within Christianity. Um, you could think that, okay, well, I think, you know, we should be governed by a big government. Okay, that's you. All right? Maybe you think, well, I know I want a small, tiny little government. Maybe that's you. Okay, those are opinions on politics. But there are some issues within the realm that we view as politics that are actually moral issues. And abortion is one of those main issues. I mean, it's just, it's just true because the Bible is extremely clear. God values life. He values life. And we as Christians, no matter our political preference on this issue, should be united on this issue. And, and let me just tell you straight. Like, I'm all for women having the right over their own body. I 100% am behind that in almost every way. But in the case of abortion, I also think the baby has a right to life that shouldn't be just trounced on. You know, it, let's not, yeah. I'm just saying, I don't think we have the right to kill an innocent child. That child should have the right to live and does have the right to live. And so we as Christians should be fighting for that. That's a very important thing. We should be all, you know, and I hate saying this even, but even over the next two weeks, we should all be voting, voting yes on issue one. Because that's going to help save the lives of kids and children that have the right to live. 
And if the church doesn't show up on this, dude, this is on us. Like, I don't want to hear any complaining about anything. The church doesn't show up on this. And, and can I just say this? Especially when we talk about such a sensitive topic about that. Um, we know statistically, and, and I know ladies, women within our church, some women who are actual, who are leaders within our church, who have had abortions in their past, nobody wants to talk about the mental and emotional pain that an abortion causes. Nobody. And it's real and it's there. And if that's you, I just want to tell you there's hope, there's forgiveness, there's healing, but it's only found in one place, and that's Jesus. That's it. Should be the church. That's where you find that forgiveness, that hope, that healing. And so, yeah, it's 100% wrong. I don't, it, it, it just is, all right? It's killing an innocent life, terminating an innocent life, whatever you want to, however you want to describe it, all right? It's wrong. It's just true. But God paid for that sin. He paid for it for you. He took care of it, and it cost him something. And he offers you forgiveness and healing for that. We got a lot of ladies who have gone through that. See, it's so easy for us to kind of stay on the back and choose not to get involved. We choose to sleep. And Jesus is telling us this morning, he's saying, hey, wake up. Have um, you ever been driving down the interstate at night or whatever, and uh, you start to kind of drift off, you know, like drift to sleep? You get tired? Any of you guys? You know how it's like so hard to keep your eyelids open? You're like, I'm trying, you know, like all that. You ever been driving down the road and um, you start to kind of, you know, maybe you don't fall asleep, but you start to kind of fall asleep. So you got the pop, you got the coffee, you know, the, the big gulp or whatever they call it. You know, you got that going. You got the radio blaring. You got the windows down. You're trying everything that you can to stay, to stay alert. You know what I'm talking about? And then what happens? You hit like the rumble strips. You're like, oh, whoa, you know, that type of thing. You know, some of you guys, you've done that. I'm not the only one. Um, so you got that. Um, have you ever noticed that the car does not stay where it's supposed to be? You know, like, maybe they will in the future, self-driving cars. Sounds pretty good. But at the moment, like, what's the car do? It drifts. Have you noticed that it drifts all on its own? Like, you don't have to help, like, make it drift. You don't have to tell it to drift. Like, it drifts all on its own. See, some of us, that's what we do. We start drifting. We fall asleep. We get tired, and we start drifting. Some of us, we've been drifting for so long. And God's saying today, this morning, he's saying, man, you got to wake up. You say, wake up. And strengthen what remains. And he's saying, strengthen your faith. Strengthen your relationship with God. He's saying, it's about to die, all right? That's how, like, strong some of our relationships with God are. Like, like it's just, it's so weak. He's saying, man, you guys got to strengthen that, right? Because it's about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Yeah, you're doing a bunch of good stuff, but you're doing a bunch of good stuff for the wrong reasons. He says, and then remember then what you have received and what you have heard. Now, what's he talking about here? What's the foundational truth that the entire Christian faith the true Christianity is founded upon, right? The gospel. That's what he's talking about. He says you need to go back and remember what you've received and heard. You need to go back and you need to remember the gospel, the wonderful, unbelievable, best news ever in the history of our planet that Jesus came and he died for every single one of us sinners. We are all rebels before his eyes and he did that as we were constantly rebelling against him. He came down to the dirt, left his glory 2,000 years ago, 
and we put him to death. And on that cross, he paid for every single thing that we ever did wrong. I mean, it's awesome. Meaning we don't have to pay for all the things we've done wrong. We don't have to pay for our sin. And you know what payment for our sin would be? Hell for eternity. Separation from him for eternity. Not a place that any of us want to go. It's not fair. It's not fair to him. But he voluntarily took on our punishment and it cost him something. And if you haven't responded to that, or if you haven't given your life over to him, if you haven't put your complete faith in what Jesus did for us on that cross 2,000 years ago, you need to do that today because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. It's not something you got to even say out loud. It's just to think. He knows your every thought. But you need to talk to him. You need to get that worked out today. If you have any questions, you can come up and ask me after the service. I would love to talk to you about it. It's the most important decision you could ever make in your entire life. But this church's problem is that they're all about activity. They're placing their faith on religious ritual rather than relationship with God, which is what a lot of churches do around us, right? It's what the Catholic church does. I mean, I know a lot of us, we, we were Catholic. That's the Catholic church. I mean, you can read it for yourself in their own, in their own, it's not Bible, catechism and stuff like that. Man, it's all about doing stuff. You got to do this, 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 all this stuff through their church. That is not the gospel. That is so far away from the gospel. The gospel is exactly opposite of that. The gospel, the foundational belief of the Christian faith is that you can't earn it. You can't do enough good to somehow have God look down on you and say, wow, I'm so impressed. That scenario doesn't happen. It's only what through he did, not through anything that we did. We place our faith not in our good stuff. We place our faith in only him. That's the gospel. And so what makes a local church dead? Is it the absence of activity? No. By the way, isn't that how we judge a church? If you go to a church, you're checking it out. Maybe, you know, we've all, four years ago, none of us were here. Is that how we did it? You know, where we come, and what do we do when we walk into a new church? We judge that church by their activity. Okay, are they doing a bunch of good stuff? They got a bunch of stuff going. They got a ministry for me. They got, they got this. They got that. I really, like, I really like the choir. You know, they got that going on. Whatever it might be for you. I don't know. You know, and that's how we, we judge a church. We judge a church based off their activity. That is not what makes a local church dead. It's the absence of the gospel that makes a local church dead. We never want that to happen to us. He says, remember what you have received. Remember the gospel. You need to keep it, meaning do it. And then repent, meaning change. See, he gives us this list. He says, this is what you do. You, if you find yourself, have you found yourself dead or have you found yourself asleep? This is what you got to do. Number one, you need to wake up and then you need to strengthen your faith or strengthen your relationship with Jesus by remembering the gospel and what he did for you. And then you need to follow it, meaning you need to allow it to change your life and, and influence you. And then you change. That's the step on how to get out of your sleep. See, some of us, we've been sleeping for so long that this right here, this everyday living for a Christian, this, 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 this the everyday living for a Christian right there, has become so hard for you to do. But this ain't an ask. It's required. It's what a Christian does. And if we don't, Jesus says, if you are not alert, meaning if you refuse to wake up, he says, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what time or what hour I will come upon you. He's like, hey, if you choose not to, right, if you choose 
to, uh, to stay asleep. He's saying, I will righteously judge you. That's not something we want. He's saying, and we will get what we deserve. You don't want what you deserve. None of us do. He's saying, that's what's going to happen if you choose to sleep but you, who, but you have a few people in Sardis within the church who have not defiled them, their clothes. And they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. He's talking about the future. He says, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. And I will never erase his name from the book of life. But will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. He says, in the next verse, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. See, Jesus is trying to get us to understand. He's like, hey, you know what will help? Think about the future. Think about the reward, man. Think about what's to come. He's saying, that's what you need to do. Remember the reward. Think beyond your own little world. Open yourself up to reality. And think about the limited time that we have. Think about what we're doing with that time. See, it's so easy for us to fall asleep. It's so easy to look alive and put on this front but be dead. See that tree that, um, that I found on my parents' property that was all rotted on the inside, it looked completely normal on the outside. Because I'm a dude, okay, I'm like, well, I gotta push this thing down, you know, like, let's see this thing. And so I'm, I'm like, start working it, you know, it's a big old tall tree. It's like shaking all the other trees around it way up top. And I'm like pushing this thing, and I get it rocking, and I get it rocking. And eventually I'm able to push the whole tree over, and my kids were just like, you know, they're like, dang. I'm like, that's right. <laughs> Obey me. Otherwise, you know, like put some fear into that kid's, those kids' eyes. Why was I able to do that? Because it was completely dead on the inside. It's completely dead. That's what Jesus is warning us in Tiffin today. He's saying, yeah, we may be able to put on a front for a little while. We may be able to do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And from the outside, we may look okay. From the outside, we may even look spiritually, spiritual. Like, wow, those people over there at Grace are so spiritual. But we will not stand for long. And we could get pushed over. And everything we do is here at Grace, like as we look towards the future and as we build space and as we invest in the next generation, like we could do all the right stuff and we could be busy. But if we're dead on the inside, if we become all about building our little Grace kingdom here, which so churches fall into, so many, like we'll stand for a little while, sure. But we're going to get pushed over. And someday we will die. Like so many of the other churches around us have died or are dying. The church in Sardis, unfortunately, eventually died. Which is exactly what God was warning them about. Sardis today, in the little town called Sart, 5,000 people, no church, no Christianity, no truth, no hope. And we should let that be a somber reminder for us. Are you asleep? Is Jesus calling you today to wake up? Are we dead? Man, he wants us to be free and alive. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for these words and some of this stuff, man, it's hard for us to, it's hard for us to take in sometimes, but God, um, we ask that you would help us to become a church that just doesn't look alive, but actually is alive. God, some of us in in here who are, I mean, our relationship with you is just, it could be described as just dead. God, we ask that you would help us to, to wake up, to wake up from our sleep, to do the right things, to invest in our relationship with you and invest in others. God, we ask that you would help us do that. We need you and we need your help. It's not natural for us. Naturally, we just want to sleep. God, we ask for your help and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.